HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio podcast. I'm your host for today, Jessica Carbone. This series is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Gastronomica's winter issue, now available online, explores the world of water, the impacts of environmental change on foodways and infrastructures of drinking water. Join us as we talk with authors. My guest this week is James Edward Mallon, whose article explores the histories of seltzer, Jewish immigration, and New York City's water infrastructure in the late 19th century. James is the engineering and science librarian for the Cooper Union and a consulting food history researcher. He is committed to serving academic communities on information literacy topics, but also researches the emergence of New York City's modern food culture and the confluence with its built landscape. James, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk. So a a basic question first, for those of us who haven't parsed the finer details of this subject, what is seltzer? Is it the same thing as sparkling water, soda water, and the other categories of non-flavored, fizzy water in the marketplace? I guess I would say that is, it's a more complex question than you might have uh, anticipated. Uh, in in some ways, the answer is uh, yes, they're all kind of the same. And in some ways, the answer is no, right? Seltzer water, I guess we could just say these are all kinds of just effervescent water. Uh, sometimes they're natural, sometimes they're not. Um, but because uh, because all of these uh, terms might have different histories and um, uh, terroirs about them, uh, I I don't want to flatten them all by just saying that they are all this, the same thing. Um, but personally, I kind of use all those terms interchangeably. Uh, but you know, 
to each their own. Uh, thank you for that primer. I think that's very helpful. And your article in this issue of Gastronomica concerns the history of seltzer as a Jewish food in New York City in the late 19th century. Now, you say at the top of your article that growing up in New York, you already considered seltzer to be a Jewish food. So tell us a little bit about the encounter zones where you first experienced or understood what seltzer was. I don't know exactly what it was that made me think seltzer was Jewish, but I can say definitively that I have memories of being very young and having that thought. Um, there was a, a particular type of seltzer. It was probably some generic brand. I don't know what that we always used to have in my house. Um, and uh, in retrospect, this was probably just a coincidence, but the label on that seltzer was uh, blue and white, which I I assume is probably more because, you know, people think of water as blue and maybe effervescence or just plain unflavored seltzer as white. Uh, but in my head, I remember it making a lot of sense because, you know, the Jewish colors are also blue and white. Uh, and um, I, I remember thinking that those two things made a lot of sense. I also remember it having the, the uh, kosher designation on the side of it, once again, made a lot of sense. Um, but in retrospect, that, that was probably more of a coincidence. But I was pretty young when that happened. The, the other thing, of course, is the word seltzer. You know, it, it, I had probably not, uh, I maybe had not thought of it particularly as a Yiddish word. Uh, or a, or a uh, German originating word, but um, probably if pressed, I probably would have come to that determination. I I can say uh, I, I've had this experience in my life. I don't know if you have before, where I've gone to other places around the country and ordered seltzer, and uh, the and ordered seltzer and the kind of response that I get is uh, either an apology because they don't have that. They only have club soda or soda water or just kind of a look of like, what is that? Um, and so probably somewhere in my head, I would have associated New Yorkness with the word seltzer and that I would have easily made that leap to uh, to kind of a Jewish background. But uh, yeah, the, the, the idea uh, that seltzer was Jewish, as I say in the article, it's kind of a, uh, it's something that I came to almost in writing this article. I didn't even realize that other people didn't think of it that way. Um, and uh, that was kind of a surprising thing at the beginning of, of writing this article. And it's really interesting that you start with the kind of feeling that seltzer provokes in you, because as you say, much of how we think about seltzer as a Jewish food is is hard to locate because it's very difficult to explain exactly what Jewish food is. Much as you just identified in your comment, that's in seltzer, the TZ sound, that appears throughout Yiddish in Sadaka or Tsuris, but it's also like Yiddish, a polyglot. Uh, Jewish cuisine is a polyglot of lots of different influences from across Eastern Europe and across human history. So how have you come to identify Jewish food for yourself as a scholar? And where in this article did you see this convergence happening of American food, New York food, and Jewish food? 
the experience that I have, and I, I don't know if you've maybe had a similar experience, uh, but the foods that I associated growing up with Jewishness were kind of the celebratory foods, uh, you know, things like kugel or brisket or latkes, the things that people always brought, you know, whenever we had celebrations at the high holidays, someone always brought one of those three and and a bunch of other, you know, stuffed cabbage, things like that. Um, and that in my head, once again, growing up, those were the Jewish foods. Um, and it wasn't until more recently that I came to think of these other things like, you know, bagels. Well, bagels are kind of always Jewish, but, uh, you know, pastrami, egg cream, deli, uh, you know, appetizing, things like that. I didn't really think of those as Jewish until later on or, or Jewish foods um, until later on. And I think that speaks to um, the kind of more historical way that uh, that Jews and Jewish culture entered into this country. It's kind of correlated with a time period and it's a little anachronistic these days, but in the late 19th and early 20th century, um, the, uh, you know, American ideal was for immigrants to enter and then eventually assimilate into American culture. These days, I think uh, we, we try more now to celebrate difference amongst uh, subcultures and subgroups and people from all over the world. Um, but the idea, I think, when Jews and, and other, um, other immigrant groups that essentially became white Americans, uh, when they first arrived here, I think Italians, uh, Irish people, um, who were kind of thought of as outsiders first, when they came here, the ideal was that they would assimilate into American culture. And I think Jews, as, as those two other cultures, Jews have been very successful in doing that. And a symbol of that success is the fact that we don't necessarily think of foods that have this Jewish history as being Jewish. Um, and uh, sometimes those things can be more obvious to uh, me or, or a New Yorker, you know, like bagels, are, are clearly Jewish. I don't know how else to, to think about that. But I do know because I've lived in other places in the country, people don't think of bagels necessarily as Jewish food. They think of it as New York food um, or they think of it as American food, just as, you know, you might think of pizza as American food nowadays. Um, yeah. And so, uh, so I think that uh, success of assimilation has this kind of um, uh, uh, deleterious effect in terms of uh, differentiating these foods, but that's kind of on purpose, and it's a it's a symbol of the success of um, of of that group of people. So it's it's a it's a balance, you know. It's a double edged sword. I was really fascinated by how you engage with this question of tracing the historical trajectory of a foodstuff of an immigrant community in your article in part because you address very early on how difficult it is to study water as a historically transformed product. 
Um, you say that water has no craftsman or tradesman associated with it that leaves behind the record of primary gastronomic evidence, um, which is a fascinating challenge to think through as a food historian. Um, now, as a librarian, how did you approach researching this subject, the relationship between water as a comestible and water as a comestible that moved through an infrastructure? Some of it was just by chance, some things that I discovered. Um, so I am the engineering and science librarian at the Cooper Union. And when I started working on this paper, I was kind of new at the Cooper Union and we were working on a project where we were going through some older materials. And it turned out that uh, we, because the Cooper Union is, a, it's a very old institution, it's a very old engineering institution in particular, we had this cache of um, incredible old documents, um, both um, uh, reports from the state uh, of the uh, 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 state water commission and the city water commission um and uh there there has one of the main sources that i cite of about uh the history of engineering of water in new york city was actually a, a book that used that archive that i had didn't know existed uh in the institution that i was working at um to uh trace that history and so i was able to actually not just look at that book but go back to the primary evidence and and look through those reports as well so some of it was government documents some of it was um you know engineering and academic work um but but the the really interesting thing I think is uh, there's not a lot of firsthand account of of water. Uh, well, there's not a lot of firsthand account of drinking water. I should say the um, you know this period of time that we're talking about hydrotherapy was uh, 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 this well since time you know, immoral, uh, hydrotherapy had been this practice of bathing in certain waters and seltzer was wrapped up in that, uh, the kind of industrialization and, uh, commercialization of those waters, uh, kind of coincides with this time period. Um, but the actual drinking water itself, there's not a lot of, uh, people's discussions about. And so what I, actually had to do, and, and you'll notice in the article, essentially the article is about this seltzer-sized gap in the, uh, in the literature about people's lives uh, and, and drinking water. Um, and so that's what I tried to do is fill in with uh, scientific materials, uh, legal and government materials, information that could kind of support, uh, support that hypothesis about this seltzer-sized gap. I love that phrase, seltzer-sized gap. <laughs> so let's talk about that gap in the history and lay out the history that you discuss in this article. Um, you look at seltzer not as a product, the way we might encounter it today, but as this stopgap in the larger waterways infrastructure in New York City in the 19th century, um, what you call an alternative mode of community hydration. So tell us a little bit of it about what that infrastructure was um, at the point that you sort of begin the history here in 1842 with the opening of the Croton Aqueduct. 
So New York City has always had this terrible natural water supply. Uh, it's just happens to be uh, naturally not a place with a lot of springs or ponds or things like that. That goes all the way back to um, the you know the original colonial history to the Dutch settlements, and even it played a part in the war between the Dutch and the English. Um, this kind of I don't know if it's perhaps an apocryphal tale that one of the reasons why. Um, uh, Peter Stuyvesant kind of finally ceded the uh, the city to the British was because the British had kind of inadvertently captured all of the water supply in the entire city just by coming from the north. Um, so it, the the city just happens to not have a lot of natural fresh water supply. Um, on top of that, uh, the lack of understanding of things like microbial theory and uh, public health uh, understanding throughout that through you know from the original colonial history to this period uh because it's not uh and also kind of the way that natural aquifers function the the lack of all those understandings permuted into um uh what natural water existed being uh being um polluted uh very famously uh, this water supply that uh, that supplied the vast majority of New York City's uh, fresh water to people. There was this um, there was this well in in Lower Manhattan. Uh, I've I've tried to find its physical location. I think it's it's kind of in the it's in the middle of this like random little park that there there's no sign no nothing but there was this very famous well that um uh that was called the uh the water pump um that people could just come to access water publicly there was no cost nothing like that um it was in lower manhattan and people would come from everywhere wherever people lived to get their fresh water, that pump was fed by this underground, was fed by this uh, natural pond called the Collect Pond. Um, and very famously, the Collect Pond, because it was one of these few natural places, it, it kind of uh, brought a lot of um, commercial and industry around it. Uh, you know, folks who needed fresh water for their... Um, for their businesses uh and essentially it just got polluted through industry and that tea water pump became polluted unknowingly uh polluted and that collect pond uh was filled in and then a, a neighborhood or a, an area that a lot of people have heard of as like a slum five points was actually built on top of it and one of the reasons why five points was this slum was because the land was naturally sinking because it was just built on water, um, built and it was polluted, you know. Uh, so, so New York really didn't have that much water supply, and so this aqueduct system was really important to foster the growth and people in the city in in all different uh, shapes and sizes wanted it. There were a lot of attempts to. Um, to supply New York with water, a lot of failed attempts in different ways. Even um, Aaron Burr had a had a certain hand in it. Uh, 
fa- really fascinating things that happened. Uh, but eventually, they landed on this method of bringing in water from way outside of the city. At the at the time, it was really far outside of the city. This area of Croton that had fresh water, and New York still today gets its water by this exact same method. Uh, there are um, there are reservoirs. Uh, now they are kind of all over the place, but there are these reservoirs in the Catskills and in, um, in I believe, in, in New Jersey. Or, or And they're not really publicized because of the potential of uh, targeting them, I, I guess. Uh, you know, you, they really do supply the entire city with its water. Uh, but you can go up to, you know, Putnam and see the uh some of the places where new york gets its water supply the original croton supply is it it no longer exists the entire aqueduct has been turned into um the original aqueduct has been turned into a hiking path um uh the new york portion of which i have actually walked myself um fascinating to see uh the the entire path it's like I think it's 30 miles and the New York portions like 10 miles. Um, it goes, it goes from uh, Van Cortland park through the Bronx. It goes over high bridge, which if you're unfamiliar with it, it's this famous bridge in, um, in Northern Manhattan that just reopened recently and was originally built as the, uh, the viaduct for that water. Um, and this kind of beautiful walking path on top of it, uh, that's where all of the water in New York City originally came in. Uh, it's this walking path. And then from there, you can kind of walk down Amsterdam and you start to notice the, the, these, you know, buildings and kind of things that follow that whole path. So I think you're laying out this wonderful overlap between the history of New York infrastructure and the history of the natural New York landscape that gets closed with the opening of the Croton Aqueduct in 1842. And that's built for a very specific capacity and initially used by a very specific population in the city. So it's not entirely for everyone at this point. Can you tell us a bit about who was actually availing themselves of this resource at that time? Yes, absolutely. So um, the vast majority of people who benefited from the original building of the Croton Aqueduct were kind of wealthier New Yorkers. The the contracting and uh, infrastructure that had to be put in place to connect or plumb into that supply and also the government contracts that you had to deal with, they kind of naturally fell towards more wealthy New Yorkers. The people who were already living in these, you know, quote unquote slums in these tenements, uh, the types of places that I'm talking about in this article, um, you know, the the owners aren't really going to volunteer themselves to sign up for those things. But it, it is really, this is a very interesting thing. I had a conversation with uh, Dr. Daniel Levinson-Wilk, um, who is a, a, a historian of business, um, and we kind of had a conversation about this topic and he told me about something that I want to look into more, but uh, right around this time, there's this boom of plumbers in New York and you can go through uh, advert, you can find these incredible advertisements, the advertising uh, of plumbers just like skyrockets in New York City um, right around this time. 
But of course, that's expensive. You know, you, you have to hire a plumber to actually plumb into this system. And so the supply was built, you know, maybe kind of on the theory of if you build it, they will come. But of course, only a certain people could afford to come. So uh, it it was a very long time until it was kind of a requirement and more people were able to benefit from this clean water supply. And certainly you get into this central question of who is going to take on the massive cost of creating what you call the last mile, the residential infrastructure that moves that water from the common resource into the private household. So we've already talked a bit about the fact that this was developed for the wealthier people in New York City, but what's going on in the tenement buildings during this same period? What does their water access look like? So the water access in tenements at this time looked like probably how it did, uh, you know, for hundreds of years. Essentially, there were wells. Some of them were uh, public wells like the tea water pump that I mentioned, uh, but there were also private wells that were in the back of a tenement um, or nearby a tenement that uh, people would theoretically get their water supply from. And essentially, you know, this was before elevators, but after uh, after buildings were, you know, I think five stories. Uh, and so uh, people had to actually supply water to their homes. And when I say people, I mean mostly women. This turned out to be a, a, a woman's job uh, in the city. They had to get buckets of water and just bring them upstairs. Uh, and sometimes it took all day. Um, uh, and um, that was really the way that water was supplied in tenements for a, a, a long time. So we'll talk about how that gap was filled after the break. We're going to take a short break and we will be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our heritage and traditions, master cheesemaker program, and the American propensity for innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case. Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin Wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. And we're back. This is Gastronomica on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jessica Carbone talking with James Edward Mallon about his newest article, Give Us Seltzer That We May Drink, How Soda Water Became a Jewish Icon. So before the break, we were talking about the uh, challenges facing the many immigrant populations living in the tenements of New York City, which were, as you note in your article, predominantly Jewish during the 1880s and onwards. 
Um, this was a moment in which we think about immigration in the United States as being a multitude, but you really document very effectively why this was so overwhelmingly a Jewish immigration experience and problem. Can you tell us a little bit about how the historical timeline of immigration aligns with this infrastructure challenge that we're discussing? Sure. Um, and, and I will say, uh, just, just to preface this, it, I don't, I wouldn't say that it is a, a, uh, solely Jewish experience. It, uh, it's what's novel is that it became a Jewish experience. Um, the, uh, previous ways of waves of immigration of, um, for example, Irish people earlier in that century experienced the same thing. Uh, but what's fascinating um, about uh, Irish water history and seltzer history uh, is is essentially Ireland has these natural aquifers and they had this history of seltzer drinking already. There's this uh, you know fascinating um, fascinating history that I that I found by uh, uh, archaeologist named Meredith Lynn. Uh, she wrote an, an article called The Elixir of Emigration. That was a huge inspiration for me for this work. Um, and something that she talks about was that in Ireland, um, the kind of uh, the mix of Celtic pra practices and Catholic practices and natural soda aquifers all kind of combined. And then when Irish immigrants came to the United States, the uh, drinking of seltzer continued on. And so it, it was not purely Jews who drank seltzer as a method of getting clean water and one that became integral to their uh, culture here. But uh, because of the time period of when uh, the mass immigration of, of Jews happened, um, kind of after the water infrastructure had been built, but before it was a requirement, they kind of continued this lineage. So I'm glad that you bring up the fact that there is an existing seltzer industry and seltzer appetite, thirst, thirst, um, in immigrant communities and in the globe before this period, because a lot of this story is also a story about British technological innovation. So now we need to get into the thing that makes seltzer fizz. How does it work? Can you tell us about who developed this technology? Sure. Yeah. So uh, uh, the way that it's often cited, and this also coincides with soda history, and there's a lot of work on soda history, um, but the the uh, person that this often comes back to is uh, uh, Joseph Priestley uh, in the 1770s, uh, who was a British scientist, and he kind of, uh, I think the once again, potentially apocryphal story is he went, he was neighbors with a brewer and uh, described the uh, phenomena of natural production of effervescence um, in one of his scientific materials. Um, so uh, he's kind of the thought of as kind of a really early uh, scientist who looked at into carbonation and he happened to be friends uh, with this Swiss guy named Johannes Schwepp. Um, and that's Schwepp, the same Schwepps that still exists today, um, who was inspired by Priestley's work and created this thing called the Geneva Apparatus, 
um, and took it to England. The Geneva apparatus was this kind of self-contained way of, of artificially carbonating water. You kind of put in water and you put in some sort of uh, alkaline material, soda at this time usually was common, or, or limestone uh, 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 powder. Uh, you kind of put that into the Geneva apparatus and it would uh, create seltzer. And the thing about the Geneva apparatus that made it stand out from other competitors, which there were a few, was that it did so under pressure. Um, and so it kind of made this effervescence extra fizzy. And uh, for one reason or another, he decided uh, to take this invention to England uh, and it really took off there. Um, the, the name Schwepp and the whole idea of the kind of bottled seltzer craze and the um, and the like soda fountain seltzer craze that really has its beginnings in Victorian England. Um, and so that was kind of the original creation of that craze. And then this guy named John Matthews had the idea to export that um, in a big way to America. And so originally the seltzer industry um, kind of worldwide, but but originally in America, it really had this British um, undertone. It really had this connection to its Victorian history. Thank you. And you do a wonderful job of laying out the history of the soda fountains in the United States as representative of this Victorian legacy down to the very ornate uh, physical details of the soda fountain itself. Uh, the article sent me running to Google Images to find pictures of these amazing uh, structures. But then we talk about how this becomes something that immigrant communities in New York City gain access to. And it's not solely through the soda fountain. So what's that next step? The same guy, John Matthews, who brought the soda fountain and carbonation to America and brought those Victorian aesthetics of those uh, soda fountains, um, uh, he uh, started investing in these kind of more portable versions of his soda fountain. Uh, it's kind of the, I think, the kind of perfect combination of these highly Victorian slash gilded age machines. You know, they have these incredible ornamented and geometric designs, very architectural. Um, it's the kind of perfect melding of those aesthetics with New York and American sensibilities. These um, street cart versions of these soda fountains get really popular. Um, I, I will say I, I was kicking myself for not uh, trying to add one of these images uh, to the article because they are incredible. Um, and recently the New York Historical Society had a show on the history of the deli. I think it might still be going on. And the first thing when you walk into the door of the history of the deli is this giant uh, image of uh, of Lewis Klepper uh, and his confectioner, confectionery and sausage uh, manufacturer from 1900. And sitting on the counter is one of these incredible portable, but also ornate uh, soda fountains. Uh, and also in that image that I love is that seltzer is two cents, which uh, for some Jews, they may recognize this idea, this uh, common phrase, two cents plain, 
um, that's, uh, that's, that was a, uh, kind of call for plain seltzer and, and something that, that, uh, is referred to in, in that time period intrinsically. So that seltzer itself in this example is actually two cents, um, just like it, it, uh, says in other histories. That's fantastic. And it really drives home the convergence of the street retail, uh, street vendor experience uh, as an integral part of both New York food culture and an integral part of the immigrant experience in late 19th century in New York. Um, So as you say toward the end of the article, seltzer has now become a multi-billion dollar industry and it continues to grow. But now it's not explicitly associated with Jewish nostalgia or foodways. It has more to do with this elite history of sparkling water, which as you explain is more about French or Italian culture than American per se. Why do you think that is? Even though in the kind of high levels of uh, gastronomic culture, we talk about in, in English, we usually call it mineral water, you know, as opposed to seltzer or soda water. Um, I think that that exists and it, and it has its own history. Um, but seltzer is still here, you know, uh, seltzer is still here in a big way. So does soda water still here in a big way. Um, you know, I have a LaCroix sitting on my desk. This culture still exists um, and doesn't seem to be going anywhere. The kind of confluence of those two things, you know, the fact that LaCroix has this kind of fanciful name LaCroix, uh, I think that that comes from marketing. Um, the history of of the American fascination with those mineral waters that I was talking about. Um, I know of at least one scholar who says it actually comes back to the 1970s and literally says that it it's tied up with the yuppie movement. Um, you know, people who are trying to uh, bring high European culture to American culture to make it more fancy. I don't know why specifically yuppies, but um, I trust this was a you know a, a water scholar, and I trust what they say. Um, but so they're almost kind of two different histories that coincide. Um, but when you start looking at this subject, that kind of happens because, as it turns out, seltzer has been with us for thousands of years, and so it's really kind of integrated in all sorts of cultures, high, low, and everything in between, and and uh, kind of has connections to both. So to close out, how do you see this larger story that you've identified of Seltzer becoming this stopgap for a lack of infrastructure um, for Jewish immigrant families in New York City? How do you see that fitting into our larger understanding of immigrant foodways in America and the challenges of acculturation, assimilation, what have you? I think that this uh, portrays a really interesting part of uh, immigrant stories in uh, America and especially in New York about uh, the kind of the like mixing and intermingling of different immigrant cultures. Uh, Generally, I feel like we talk about these, these things in a, in, you know, their singular kind of histories. So 
like I was saying before, the kind of Irish history and the Italian history. Um, but these things kind of co-mingle. Um, another example on top of Seltzer of, um, of something that kind of became Jewish in this weird, weird way is actually Chinese food, right? Like, and like, I, and like, American Chinese food that I mean. And I, I don't I don't exactly know why. It's not something that I've looked into extensively. But once again, as a New York Jew, I know that I associate my life and my, my culture. You know, I grew up eating a lot of Chinese food, as I'm sure a lot of Americans do. But there's something that, uh, that Jews uh, have this particular affinity for, for Chinese food. I don't know if it's because, you know, we're both uh, or, or Jews and, and uh, you know, Chinese immigrants were, were both kind of outsiders. They were both non-Christians, things like that. It, it could be. Time periods may have lined up. I'm not exactly sure, but the kind of uh, the convergence of uh, those two gastronomies and food histories as two different immigrant groups, uh, I think that idea of convergence is relatively uh, less studied than these cultures on their own. And so that that's what I would definitely take away is uh, kind of looking at these things in a more systemic or shared way. Does this fantastic research have anything to do with what you're working on now? Can you give us a preview? Yes, it does. And I allude, I allude to it at the very end of the article. Essentially, th- this work came uh, almost out of left field for me. I, I was, I, I primarily look at a generation later um, I'm, I'm generally more interested in the interwar years, um, and the, uh, building of, of, uh, of New York city vertically. Um, and that has some really interesting implications with the water supply. It turns out those tenements being five stories tall, that is specifically related to how how high you could get water supply without bursting pipes in the basement. Um, and so uh, there's kind of this huge technological advancement that has to uh, happen with water supply to allow for the building of high rises, which happens a little bit later. Um, and uh, and so th- that's that's kind of the larger project that I'm working on and um, something that I, I will actually be uh, presenting a paper on later this year um, is is uh, the food cultures in in those high rise buildings uh, when they originally were created and how um, different it is and understudied it is uh, today. Well, I found this article, as many of us at Gastronomica did, utterly refreshing. <laughs> And I want to thank you, James, for joining us and discussing your article with us. And the name of that article, again, is Give Us Seltzer That We May Drink, How Soda Water Became a Jewish Icon. Listeners can read the full piece in issue 23.1 of Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. We'll return in a couple of weeks with author interviews from our spring 2023 issue, online soon. Be sure to subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes this season.
The Gastronomica podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.